Welcome to episode 3 of the Pokemon Gold podcast. My name is James Carew, co-editor of the Pokemon Gold website and magazine, and we've launched this brand new podcast to coincide with the release of the very latest issue of the magazine, Issue 6. Pokemon Gold is a website and magazine from Ireland which takes a close look at football culture, going beyond the action on the pitch to explore everything from historic players, to the social impact of the game, to the design of everything from stadiums to club crests. A brand new issue is now available to order from pogmagold.bigcartel.com or check us out on social media at pogmagold. It's 64 pages of quality writing and art and illustration from contributors from places such as Japan, Argentina, Germany and further afield and of course Ireland. On today's episode we'll take another deeper look at a feature article from the magazine with the author of a piece which is both historical and topical. And joining me as ever is my co-host, Joe Phelan. Welcome back, Joe. Hey, how are you doing? I'm very well. Today's episode will explore the past, present, and perhaps future of one of Ireland's most famous clubs, the Bohemian Football Club, or Bows as they're known, a North Dublin institution making waves both on and off the pitch. So to start off, for his homework, I tasked Joe with an introduction to Bowes was the epic Copper 90 Derby Days video, the Shamrock Rovers Dublin Derby. Did you watch it? <laughs> I did. I watched it. I watched it. I've, I've seen it before as well, because I remember it was one of the first things you ever said to me that your brother was, was one of the contributors to that. So, uh, yeah, I watched it again this afternoon. And the, the thing that, that struck me the first time I saw it was all of my family is Irish and they either all support Liverpool or Man United. So I just kind of assumed that that was the way it was all over the country. And it, I, I just think it's amazing that there are these... And I'm, I'm not trying to be dismissive or anything here, but these relatively small teams that have got such a passionate fan base. But they're not only trying to cheer on their team, they're also doing what they can to grow the sport. And I think that's something that can be can be forgotten when you support I support Tottenham and I don't do anything to I don't feel like I'm progressing football in any way I'm just supporting Tottenham but it, it, it's and but I've got a lot of fans who support um lower league teams in the UK so one of my best friends a Bristol Rovers fan and half of his time is spent trying to figure out if the club is gonna like stay in existence which which is just it's just a completely different side of football and it's amazing that in in the documentary the this is the top tier of, of Irish football. Like these are the, the big two teams. And even then, in the documentary, they're saying, if this match didn't exist, we, we don't even know if the clubs would be able to continue operating. It's, it's just a completely different world, really. I totally agree, Joe. And that's why we're delighted that today's guest is Jerry Farrell, who's a historian and presenter of a Bohemian Sporting Life podcast and website, and who describes himself as Bohemian in outlook and sporting affiliation. So welcome to the Pogue Magold podcast, Jerry. And what does that mean? 
Well, first of all, thanks guys for inviting me on and thanks again for asking me to contribute to issue six of the, the magazine. I was only talking on, actually on a recent episode of the podcast and if you look up, you know, dictionary definitions, which I know is a bit reductive, but if you look up a dictionary definition of a bohemian, uh, you get the quite dry answer that it's someone from the region of Bohemia, which I think is in the modern Czech Republic. Or uh, one, one description I quite liked is someone who lives an unconventional lifestyle. Um, so I quite like that. I think that's a nice, um, I don't know how unconventional I am, but I like to think I'm a little bit, uh, I'm getting older these days. So I'm probably getting a bit more boring and stayed, but, uh, I suppose that's, that's a nice description for someone who's, who's a bohemian. And I, I do think that the club, you might call a nominative determinism, the club kind of lives up to its name, especially in more recent years, just a lot of interesting things happening around Daily Mount, uh, a lot of interesting things happening with the club and within the membership, I do think they're, they're living up to their name at the moment of being quite bohemian and being quite eclectic and inclusive. So as we've done in the episodes to date, I'll start by asking you, what got you into football, first of all, and then how did you come across Bohemians? Well, I suppose I'm probably of that perfect age where I grew up in the kind of late 80s, early 90s here in Dublin when so was the Irish national team began uh, their kind of golden age. Uh, I suppose anyone who was like, my dad's generation or grandfather's generation probably saw Ireland uh, struggle, you know, uh, manfully and fail at qualification for various World Cups and European Championships. But when I was a kid, you know, we qualified for Euro 88, World Cup 90. We're very unlucky not to qualify for Euro 92, qualified for World Cup 94. We had all these great uh, players as part of the team. You had the whole Jackie's Army sort of cultural phenomenon and I know there's say, a new film coming out about Jack Charlton the impact he had and you know it was huge certainly it, it broadened interest in football and it, it, it basically created um, a, a certain feel-good atmosphere absolutely around the football team and um, you know, that got, it, got me interested in it as a kid you know collecting the Panini sticker albums and so on and watching the, watching the matches on, on, on TV and then when I was a little bit older going to games as well always brought up on all sorts of sports so I'd be you know Brought to Daily Mount to see Bowes play. Brought to Lansdowne Road to see Ireland. You know, would go to see the Dubs playing Crow Park or Parnell Park. Be brought to Morton Stadium for the Athletics every year. All that sort of stuff. So I, I grew up with, with sport all around me. My, my dad was a former Bowes player. His uncle was a lifetime vice president of Bohemians as well. My family are from in or around that part of, of North Dublin where Bowes would be the local team and Daily Mount would be somewhere that you would cross not infrequently. And I suppose then, when I got a little bit older, became a member, and I've been a member now of Bose, I think, for over 10 years at this stage, or will be as of next year. Um, so it's, you know, it's part and parcel of my daily life now. I'm probably about a kilometre and a half walk from, from Daily Mount Park. I really miss my Friday nights there, I have to yeah, say. Yeah, I bet. Can't wait to get back. So, yeah, Bose is a big, big part of uh, my kind of weekly existence, and I've kind of followed that interest into you know writing a few bits about the club uh, i'm a big interest in history as well something i've studied and i'm trying to take that interest and turn it towards the club because i think especially in ireland we don't really do sports history as well as we could there's been a big focus on it in recent years and some excellent publications coming out now i know there's an atlas of irish sport being compiled at the moment which is due for release in the next couple of years you have great people like paul rouse or um cormac moore or connor curran or people like that who are writing more about sports history and looking at, from quite a serious and academic point of view, about history of football and sport in Ireland. Uh, but in a way, I think that's also, you know, just telling the great stories that are out there that are untold. And it's something I hope I try to do in a small way with the blog and the podcast. Um, for any 
anyone listening now, it's not all about Bohemians. I talk about the League of Ireland in general, the Irish national team. I, you know, I have all sorts of stuff there about, you know, Hungar- Hungarian footballers in the 50s or, you know, kind of uh, tours to, uh, from South American sides in the 30s and all sorts of kind of weird and wonderful things that, are, that capture my interest and I hope kind of interest other people as well. I grew up watching League of Ireland football in Kilkenny, but then living and studying in Dublin, being able to go to a game, being able to catch the bus over to Fibsbury, go to a Bohemians game, that was a real thrill for me. And what I always found going to Daily Mount was the the sense of history about it. It's an old style ground behind terraces of houses. You can walk from the pub, you can walk from the centre of Dublin up to the ground. It feels what football is supposed to be about. I absolutely agree. I think I love the fact that, you know, Dalyman Park opened in 1901. I mean, those red brick terraces are there. And I suppose for any maybe listeners in England and things like that, I mean, the closest I've seen there, I, I went to Charlton game before, the Valley is not dissimilar, uh, or even like Luton Town, Kenilworth Road, where it's kind of tucked in behind houses and things like that. Uh, it's a real almost kind of Edwardian football ground feel to that. And, you know, you get in through these laneways at the back of terraces and that. And as you say, the floodlight pylons are kind of iconic in the Dublin skyline. You can spot them from across most of North Dublin. It's something that's really appealed to me. The club is 130 years old this year, founded in 1890. So, you know, if, and it's, it's members owned as well, always has been. So it's, it's a members club where 100% members owned. So I think there's about 800 odd members at the, at the moment, at the last count. And we all own a share in the club. There's no majority shareholder. It's not even like the German model of the 50 plus one everyone has an equal share in the club. Um, and look, I love that as well, that, you know, I can go to an AGM and elect the club president and, you know, <laughs> approve the auditors or all that scintillating sort of stuff. Um, and I think the onus has been put back on the wider support base as well, that uh, one of our, our the, the board members is always saying that it's not just enough to pay your membership fee and you, know, you get your, your member card and that gets you into the matches. They want to encourage that um, ethos of volunteerism as well, so that, you know, look, I've been there cleaning the terraces weeding pulling up weeds and things like that i do the bits that i think i'm okay at which is you know i write a few articles for the program or the the website or things like that but you know everyone pitches in and does the bits that they're good at and um i think really that's helped grow the club uh from a situation where and i think it might be even mentioned that copa 90 documentary that you were watching joe i mean the club was nearly was pretty much close to bankruptcy not more than 10 years ago uh, there was a plan to sell Daily Mount, this, this wonderful old 119-year-old football ground, and uh, you know move out to a kind of a brownfield site in the outer suburbs of Dublin. And in a weird way, the best thing that ever happened was this deal that would, at the time, have made us probably the wealthiest club in Ireland, collapsing along with the rest of the Irish economy. And we kind of had to basically fight to survive. A kind of new board came in, a new approach was taken, new attitudes were taken. I think our first team budget dropped by 90%. So that is, when you consider, like, we were winning league titles and winning doubles under Pat Fenn and we were in Europe, we were about two minutes away from knocking Red Bull Salzburg out of uh, uh, Europe. And, uh, you know, uh, that match still haunts me. But anyway, um, <laughs> you know, but and we went from that to basically being on the brink of going out of existence to coming back now where we've just secured uh, second place in the league. We're back in Europe again, uh, confirmed for next year, which is the first kind of back-to-back Seasons in Europe we've had for over 10 years. So the club is definitely on the up. We got a few quid from um, Matt Doherty's uh, sell-on clause when he moved to Tottenham Hotspur. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> and, and like you said, there's a great history to the ground. I mean, everyone's played there going back from, you know, Zidane, Pele, 
Johan Cruyff, Franz Beckenbauer, all the way back to Fritz Walter or Stanley Matthews. And of course, all the great Irish players. I mean, Paul McGrath made his debut for Ireland there uh, in a game against Italy, which was uh, kind of infamous because I, mean, I think about 40,000 people crammed their way into Daly Mount Park, which is really not suitable for holding 40,000 people. And there's people <laughs> climbing the pylons and standing on the roof and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and going all the way back to your, your Johnny Giles and things like that. And I mean, there's a great history to the ground. And uh, it feels a little bit like you're you're kind of traveling back in time. I mean, parts of the ground were designed by Archibald Leach and, you know, the terraces are still there. And, you know, there's, there's a great sense of history to the, and great sense of place. How well known is the history of Bohemians to, like, regular Dubliners? Because you've obviously got the background that your, your family was involved with it. But how much would, would people know about it? I like to think a bit more now. Uh, I like to think that our, I suppose, the club have done a good job of presenting the message of the club, the ethos of the club. But again, I still think we're fairly, I don't want to say unknown, but I think that the detail of the club and the history isn't probably that well known. And I'd say you could probably say the same thing for Shelburne or Shamrock Rovers or St. Pat's Athletic. One thing that always kind of irks me a bit is there's a myth growing up about those famous floodlights that Bowes bought them secondhand off Arsenal, that they used to be in Highbury which actually one of the pieces on the blog is I kind of debunked that because where that myth came from was we bought these new floodlights from a, a firm in Scotland, same guys who had done floodlights at Hamlin Park and Easter Road and other places uh, at considerable cost, what you'd almost call today crowdfunding, to pay this rather large sum of money for these, uh, I think £20,000 back in 1962, which is a lot of money back then. Not an insignificant amount of money now. Uh, but... They invited a, te- a team over uh, to inaugurate the, the floodlights and this was the only team they could find available at the time who would be a big draw with Arsenal. So Arsenal came over, played this match in 1962 and all of a sudden that turned into Arsenal were there at the inauguration match to we bought them second hand off Highbury. And I always get people going, oh, Bose, yeah, do you know the floodlights used to be in Highbury? It's like, no, they weren't. <laughs> you know, I think if the history of Bohemians is, isn't as widely known, the modern history of them is becoming much more known around Dublin. What they've done off the pitch is pretty incredible. Daily Mount, I don't want to use the word hipster, so I won't use it, but it is the place to be on a Friday night in Dublin. Something Bohemians have done is really tapped into the local community with supporters initiatives, working in Mountjoy Prison, Refugees Welcome is the logo on the shirt. And Jerry, you mentioned Charlton Athletic, funnily enough. I attended a talk with the FAI from a representative of Charlton, which is intended to inform League of Ireland clubs what they could do to grow and progress. And what he said then was, you must become part of the local community. And that was the mid-2000s, and so many League of Ireland clubs didn't or couldn't do it for whatever reason. Bohemians have done that, and now they're reaping the rewards from it. Absolutely, and and Bose have done it with very little resources, because, I mean, from basically putting out an invite to people to come watch a football match on a screen in one of the bars, we now have groups from direct vision centres being able to go to matches, and then the collaboration with Amnesty and the Refugees Welcome. The Bohemian Foundation, which is kind of the charitable offshoot of the club, does a lot of great work with the prisoners in Mount Joy and the women's prison, the Doka Centre as well. And uh, it's brought an awful lot of goodwill. And look, that wasn't always the case. When I was going to matches, first of all, I don't think we necessarily had that same connection with the community. I never thought 10 years ago when we were scrimping and saving to try and pay creditors who were looking for their money. I never thought that in 10 years' time we'd be where we are now, but it's great to see. 
Jerry, you referenced how you can't go see bows at the moment because of the modern day pandemic. So let's jump back a hundred years to the last great global pandemic. And for the next quarter of an hour, the crowd retreated to some of the slickest play ever seen at Dalima. Tens of thousands of Irishmen signed up to the British war effort. The lads got killed. You couldn't bury them right away because that was an easy target for the, the jetties. This unknown enemy is starting to sweep through. The war is over. Spanish flu has been, some people call, a forgotten pandemic. Up and down the street they parade, delirious with joy, in their influenza mask. There have been over 50,000 cases of COVID-19 in Ireland. The government has decided that the evidence of a potentially grave situation arising is now too strong. Here is Mandu Sakon in position. Oh, what a goal! Corcoran with a dummy. Worked their socks off. It's exciting times, I believe, for the club. A tremendous performance by the Dublin side. Your article, it's called Bows in the Time of Influenza, so I'll let you set the scene. Yeah, that's my vague literary reference to um, Garcia Marquez's Love in the Time of Cholera. <laughs> I don't know if anyone picked up on that. Um, but when people were looking for comparisons with COVID-19 and lockdowns and the kind of global nature of, of, of this virus, uh, they were struggling with comparison. I suppose the, the nearest thing people could relate back to was the, the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918 and 1919. It, like I say in the article, Spanish flu is a bit of a misnomer because it didn't originate in Spain. It's just because World War I was ongoing at the time. You know, this virus was rife in um, the trenches of the war and things like that. It was in Germany, it was in France. Uh, it originated, we believe, in uh, Kansas in the United States. And it was actually Amer some American soldiers bringing it into the, the European theatre of war. But because Spain was neutral, uh, the Spanish newspapers reported on it, and this influenza epidemic, and therefore it got the moniker of the Spanish flu, which is a bit unfair in the Spaniards, because everyone had, had, had this flu. It was truly global. And then, of course, millions of soldiers are demobbed and are sent home. And, of course, that's a great vector for uh, infection because there's millions of guys traveling around the world, uh, going back home and infecting everyone else. It's crazy when you think about it. So we've got, I think we, we've passed a million deaths now with, with COVID-19. But if you look back to 1918, 1919, the conservative estimates is that 50 million people were killed. And they, some people even say that that figure is way too conservative because we don't have accurate figures for um, places like China or some parts of Africa and so on. Yeah. Um, so that the figures may, the true figures may be much higher and could be 80, 90 million plus. Wow. And obviously a much smaller popula world population than 100 years ago. So that's a scary number. And obviously it, it really affected Ireland. So a conservative estimate is about 210,000 Irishmen fought in um, the First World War. It's probably actually considerably higher because you know, there's Irishmen in the Canadian Army, the American Army, the Australian Army. So it could be well over a quarter of a million. And according to different estimates that maybe somewhere between kind of 20 and 40,000 of them may have, uh, may have perished in that war. But well over 20,000 people were killed within a year of the Spanish flu in Ireland alone. So if you consider even the figures we have for COVID-19, we've already lost well over 1,000 people in a period of probably eight or nine months. We had 20 times that right. a, a hundred, hundred odd years ago. Uh, it was scary. And I suppose the, the big difference between 
COVID-19 and the Spanish flu was COVID-19 has disproportionately affected older people. Uh, the Spanish flu was weird in that it, it, it disproportionately affected young, healthy people. What one theory is that your younger, healthier people have a stronger autoimmune kind of response and that their immune system basically went into overdrive and it was actually the immune system of the person reacting against the virus that killed them. You know, so you had terrible situations where you had like people in their 20s and 30s dying and leaving young children you know, uh, without parents and leaving them as orphans. But then, of course, you know, daily life continued. So you, you had a lot of things that, you know, we would be familiar with today. People were wearing masks. Um, a lot of businesses did close down. People did self-quarantine. But we also had things that kind of continued to happen. You know, schools were closed in some cases and big sporting events were postponed. But, I mean, football did continue. And I write in the article there that, um, you know, you had matches with... 6,000, 8,000 pe- people at them. And uh, it was a strange time for football in Ireland as well because the Irish team were uh, home nations champions, so similar to the, to the way Six Nations is now. So Ireland, England, Scotland, Wales played a championship every year and kind of continued to do so with Northern Ireland as well up until the 1980s. you got to remember there's no border at the time, uh, but it was the first time Ireland had won it outright in, the, in 1914. And of course, the war breaks out. That, that great team is broken up. Um, and then what happens with, with the Irish League? So... The Irish League is dominated by the big Belfast clubs. So generally, it's Belfast teams, a team like maybe like Derry Celtic, and generally Bohemians and Shelburne, who were the, the two kind of dominant Dublin clubs at the time. And when that happens, uh, they basically split the league. So it's kind of a, an Antrim and District kind of league. And then there's a kind of a Dublin and District league. So there isn't actually a standard league of Ireland. And even then, the, the Irish Cup, which does continue, but even that becomes regionalised. So you get situations where bows are constantly playing shells in the opening round of the cup because the, the Dublin teams play off against each other and all that sort of stuff. The war had a huge impact, obviously, as well. Thousands of football players and football fans are going to the front. The number of clubs affiliated with the Leinster Football Association kind of halved at one stage over the course of the war. Obviously, crowd numbers are down. So, you know, it's a, it's a very challenging time. So peace is declared and people understandably are anxious to get back to normal so in some ways the the football clubs are delighted that crowds are beginning to come back and you know you have that happening even when you know the numbers are really really high i have a stat here there was three peaks in that 1819 spanish flu kind of one of them happened around this time year october november one theory is that uh, it was made worse by the fact that everyone was celebrating Armistice Day, so everyone went, you know, the war is over, what do you do? You go out and ha- meet all your friends and have a big party, which is a great way to spread a virus as well, of course. Um, but I read a kind of shocking statistic in the Irish Times that between uh, the 28th of September and the 9th of November, 756 people died of the Spanish flu in Dublin alone. That's not, that's just in Dublin City, which is crazy uh, in the space of, what's that? That's probably less than six weeks. So, and at the time, bows are and shells and a lot of the other clubs are playing matches against each other and you're having six, seven, eight thousand people crammed into games. And even then, the, the cup final takes place and because uh, bows obviously didn't make the cup final, they kind of play an alternate cup final where they play one of the defeated semi-finalist teams, which is Belfast Celtic, and they bring them down um, from Belfast to play in Daly Mount. And again, there's another huge crowd there. So... Bows at the time, at the height of Spanish flu, have um, you know, bumper attendances in Daly Mount Park. And similarly, Shelburne do in Shelburne Park. And obviously, there's still games going on up in, in, in Belfast as well with you know, Linfield or Glentoran. And you know, the Irish Cup final takes place and there's a crowd of 10,000 or so at it. So, um, you know, there are big attendances. There's no ban on, on sports. 
Um, so people are still, you know, some games are postponed or moved, but you know they're not cancelled. They are, they do happen. You got to remember, most people are are crammed in on terraces. There's usually a reserve stand for the people who want to pay the bit extra, but I mean, probably 80, 90 percent of people are on quite busy terraces around football grounds. Was there any sense from your research of kind of public outcry about sporting events taking place or League of Ireland games continuing? There's not really. It, it, it's funny. At the time, people understand. It's not like previous mass pandemic outbreaks uh, from the 19th century because so as science had moved on a bit, people were beginning to understand how uh, disease was passed. People understood about you know germ theory as well, which kind of emerged in the late 19th century um and you know when you talk about like previous things like cholera outbreaks and typhoid outbreaks people kind of knew it was passed somehow but they weren't 100 percent sure some people thought it's through water some people had this idea it's miasma that it's just in the air and i suppose they kind of understand what that means but they don't understand what a microscopic germ is by the time the spanish flu people kind of have a better idea in you know popular conscious what that means so they know kind of know how viruses are passed from what i've seen anyway from researching kind of uh newspaper articles at the time there's no contemporary account saying oh well this shouldn't happen or these games shouldn't take place most of the stuff is is people are delighted that the crowds which were so uh, low during wartime are now coming back and that isn't it great that you know you know sport is thriving again you know there's a return to a certain level of normality post-war in terms of social life and things like that as well was, was there any indication that any of the players were getting ill so you were saying earlier that it sort of acts like uh, the spanish flu sort of acted like an autoimmune disease so the healthier you are the more likely you are to succumb to it so the footballers must have been the youngest and the healthiest of the lot and then they were surrounded by masses of people every single week like so were, were teams getting decimated yeah absolutely um names escape me but there are many references to um players again like you say joe guys in their 20s and 30s who are fit healthy men dying um one of the, i mentioned their bloody sunday i know that uh, uh a couple of the tipperary gaelic team who played in crow park on that day uh, had died in the interim and again they were fit healthy young men um so the spanish flu killed an awful lot of young healthy people and there were numerous uh, sportsmen and athletes among them and um it did it did have a big impact and you do see quite regularly as you're looking through the newspapers um, deaths, uh, listed young men, Spanish flu or influenza, and then you'll see, you know, a member of such and such a club or a prominent member of this, and it's you know across all sports and a lot of cases, especially Bose members were often very active in a, a lot of sports, so they would play football or as well as tennis or cricket or Gaelic football or whatever else you're having to have water polo. I was, I was going to say, it's amazing that uh, this sort of puts, and uh, people say this all the time, but it sort of puts our mod, what, what's happening now into perspective, where there's riots, well, not riots, but there's, there's people uh, going into Trafalgar Square in their thousands because the pubs are going to be shut for four weeks. And a and hundred years ago, they were like, oh, we just want to go and watch football. We're, we'll ha- we're happy to risk imminent death. And then they, they, probably, they probably would have died, but it just seemed like a, a much hardier time. Yeah, and I mean, they were going to cinemas, they were going to theatres, they were going to kind of other sort of social events. Um, you know, pubs did close, but it wasn't a prescriptive sort of thing. Sometimes the pubs closed because the family that was running the pub, someone had got the flu and they shut down from that point of view. And some people kind of self-isolated, as we, we would say now. But uh, generally speaking, there wasn't that sort of government intervention where saying you have to shut the following. I think that whole period in Irish history is fascinating anyway. But when you look at it as you do, Jerry, through the prism of sports and League of Ireland football, again, you reference in the piece just how volatile Ireland was. 
we'd had the 1916 rising, the First World War, now the Spanish flu, about to undertake a war of independence, a civil war. In the middle of this, football is continuing. Your piece talks about having to uh, release players from British regiments to play. And you, you talk about players who lost their lives in, in the war and supporters who as well passed away. The whole period is incredible to think about what's going on and football continues throughout all of this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, if you look at different estimates, uh, James, say somewhere like Dublin, which you know, 100 years ago was a much smaller city. I mean, Dublin is what, 1.2 million people now. It was much, much smaller then. It was a fraction of the size of that, probably, probably less than a quarter of the size of that. But you had, based on some estimates, over 8,000 uh, Dubliners alone died in the First World War. And then probably... Uh, a comparative number uh, dying of, of Spanish flu. Now think about anything that would kill ten to 15,000 people in the space of four or five years in a city like Dublin today. I mean, it would be front page news all the time. We'd be talking about it forever. People persisted through an awful lot of tragedy then. I've tracked over 40 uh, players and members of Bohemians who were uh, involved in the First World War. Several of them died. Uh, Harold Sloan, probably the most famous, who was um, Irish International Centre Forward, um, scored a hat-trick in the first filmed international match a three-all draw with Wales in uh, the race course ground in Wrexham as far as I know um, unfortunately of course because it was the first ever there was one camera and <laughs> yeah. it was basically filmed the lads going on and off at half time you don't see any of Harold's goals you see him trotting off the pitch but uh, <laughs> he scored a hat-trick in the first filmed international match but yeah he, he dies um, in uh, 1917 and then his son enlists in the, in, during the Second World War and he's killed in the 1940s, uh, which is you know, really tragic. There's, a, there's huge connections. And of course, some of those players, there's quite a, a couple of prominent guys, a guy called Emmett Dalton who comes back from the First World War. Uh, and within two years of returning from, you know, uh, he's at the Battle of the Somme, he's, he's involved in the RAF, he's training snipers in um, Palestine and North Africa. He comes back within two years. He is head of training for the IRA during the War of Independence. And of course, he's a, he's a first-team player for Bowes as well and later becomes club president. So you have crazy stories like this that cross all sorts of different uh, political spectrums. And you know that's why I like looking at stuff through the prism of sport because you don't know where... The, it's, it's accessible. It's something that people are familiar with and you don't know where those little stories are going to lead you to. It's a nice little window into wider history because I think sometimes if you're talking about kind of that decade, say from the lockout in 1913 to the end of the Civil War. It feels too big. It feels like there's too much stuff going on. You have a world war, you have a war of independence, you have the rising, you have the Spanish flu. There's too much stuff going on to deal with all that. But you tell the story through the history of the football club and the people involved and the, the way that their lives intersected with these historical events. Uh, I think that's maybe a more accessible way for people to engage with history. It's such a pleasure to have this article in the magazine, Jerry, because not only is it fascinating in its own right, it gives context to Ireland's history and Ireland's football history. Yeah, it's so interesting. And hopefully it won't be too long before we can get back to normal and you can get back to Daily Mount Park, Jerry. Well, here's hoping. <laughs> Check out Jerry's podcast and website, A Bohemian Sporting Life, and pick up your copy of Issue 6 to delve deeper into that article. And thanks as ever to you, Joe, for joining us. No problem. Cheers again. And that's it for the latest episode of the Pogue McGoal podcast. Tell us what you think by contacting us on social media at Pogue McGoal. And listen out for future editions with more guests who's contributed to both the magazine and website. 
Don't forget, you can now order issue 6 of the Pokemon Gold magazine right now from pokemongold.bigcartel.com. And join us next time on the Pokemon Gold podcast.